All right, so we're, we're in a short series. Uh, this is the last one of a three-week sermon series we've been doing through the vision of Springbrook Church. Uh, and, and our vision is really simple. We, we like simple here. We, we are all about simple. Um, and here's what, here's what we exist to, to do, to love Jesus, love people, and help people love Jesus. Um, doesn't get much more simple than that. And, uh, and we've tried uh, over the years to bring it to the simplest place we can, and that is about where we've landed. So at this point, um, we've looked over the last couple weeks at what it means to love Jesus. And uh, we, we primarily landed here that it's not about what we do to love Jesus as much as it's about what Jesus has done for us. And that Jesus loves us f- leads us into love for him. That's just how the, the New Testament clearly teaches this to work. It's, it's not that our obedience produces love uh, from Jesus to us or, or anything else. It's that he loved us first, and so we love him. So we unpacked that over from John 15. We've been walking through John 15 for this series. So that was kind of the first 12 verses or so of, uh, of John 15. Last week, we looked at what it means to love people. And, and John uh, records what Jesus says for us here. And it's really simple. We just basically landed on this, that his commandment is that we love one another as I have loved you. That's what Jesus says. Love each other as I have loved you. So we talked last week about how we love people because we've been loved by Jesus. And his love and what that means is actually what informs us on how to love others. So that's, that's basically where we've been. Now, this third thing we're going to talk about today is how do we help people love Jesus, right? So everything's kind of moving outward, right? We're, we're, we're experiencing the love of Jesus in us. That leads us then to love the people around us in, in our church, particularly, although obviously more broadly than that. But helping people love Jesus is, is the piece that takes us even further out, This is where we start to pursue people who do not know Jesus, don't have a relationship with him, and we want to help them get to a place where they know him and love him and and are saved by him. And so we're talking about the more or less the the mission of the Christian life to help more people become followers of Jesus because it's only in Jesus that sins can be forgiven it's only in Jesus that we can be saved. It's only in Jesus that we can be fully loved and who we are meant to be and be restored to our creator. It's only in Jesus that those things happen. And so we want more people to get in on this, right? That that's, should be our heart as Christians. We want more people to meet him. And so we're going to talk about what that means. And um, this, this morning, just for a little while, we'll, we'll talk through this. But uh, we, we need to start in John 15, because that's where we've been anchoring this whole series. And, and Jesus basically takes us there uh, as he wraps up, as we wrap up this chapter, as this part of his, his uh, teaching to his disciples concludes. Um, we're in a section of scripture called the Upper Room Discourse. It's the section of scripture where Jesus is teaching his disciples uh, what they need to be prepared for as he's about to go to the cross. So from John 13 through John 17, uh, these five or so chapters are this lengthy section in John's gospel of just Jesus teaching his disciples what they need to prepare for as he goes to the cross, as he's raised, and as he's ascended into heaven. 
So right, that's where we're at in the context here. And he's preparing them for the reality of what's about to happen. Uh, And so look at verse 18. This is where we'll pick it up. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. All right, so we're going to, this is not quite the answer yet, but we're, we're raising a question. Why do we need to help people love Jesus? And part of the answer, well, the answer to why, I guess, is answered here. The answer to how will be answered in the next couple of verses. Um, why we need to help people love Jesus is because they don't, right? That's what he's saying. I mean, that's, again, not rocket science, hopefully, right? Um, he says, he, he uses this word, really strong word. Jesus himself speaking these words said something very strongly, that if the world hates you, it's because they hated me. And so th- there's a reality here that we need to recognize, that we need to help people love Jesus because people don't naturally love Jesus. They're, in fact, hostile to him. Now, not, not a lot of people probably in our community, in our town, in our county, are going to say that they hate Jesus. There's probably one or two. Maybe you've met some of them. Um, but, you know, not a, not a lot of us, right? So we might, we might stand here where we are and go, I don't know if hate's the right word. That seems kind of strong. Maybe indifferent, apathetic. Okay, th- all true, fine. But uh, the reality is, is that there's really only there's really only extremes here. There's only love or hate in, in Jesus's view. We either love him or we hate him. And there's no middle ground with Jesus. There's either accept him and love him because he loved us or, or reject him. And so we want to help people love Jesus because we want to move them from being opposed to him to being uh, changed by him. And so the, John is recording these words and Jesus is speaking these words to his disciples because um, they are about to see the largest persecution and act of hatred towards Jesus that there ever was, which is the crucifixion. We know that Jesus is actually talking here specifically about the Jewish leadership of his day and of the apostles' day particularly, although I think that there's broader application beyond it, but We know that he's specifically talking about the leadership of Israel because he says in verse 25 that the word that's written in their law must be fulfilled. And here's the the word that they hated me without a cause. So he's basically quoting the Old Testament and saying, listen, the, the Old Testament says that they 
are going to hate me without a reason. But he's talking about their law, that theirs being the, the Jewish nations and at the time of his life. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples for what will happen to him in just a matter of hours as he's arrested and tried and, and tortured and crucified. And he's preparing them for these realities. But we're getting to the answer of, okay, why do we need to help people love Jesus? The answer is because they don't and we want them to. But, but how do we actually get there? That's where we got to go, 26 and 27. And then we're going to jump over to the book of Acts after this, okay? So but look at uh, 26 and 27. Here's how Jesus explains what's going to happen. He says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, and who is the helper? The Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So, so he's telling his disciples here as they are just kind of sitting in the tension between Jesus uh, with them and then Jesus going to the cross and ultimately ascending into heaven. He's talking to them about what's going to happen in the, in the time after he leaves them. And he says he's going to send the Spirit to them and the spirit will bear witness to him in the world to be a witness in the world to who he is and he's going to use them as those who have been with him to bear witness about him so we see why we need to help people love jesus it's because they don't how we help people love jesus is through spirit empowered witness this is what jesus is establishing for his followers He's putting us here for this purpose. So we're seeing that, but I think what's helpful is to actually go to the New Testament and look at how this happened. Not because it's going to happen exactly identically the same way for us, but the principles of what the apostles did in the days after the Holy Spirit came upon them, I think is helpful for us to continue walking in that direction and to employ some of the same strategies that they did. So turn to the book of Acts with me and we're going to look at a lot here, okay? We're going we're gonna to do a, a buggy ride through the book of Acts, okay? And again, I know I always use Amish analogies. I don't know why, but it's a buggy ride. It's not a car ride. We're doing that because th- for whatever reason, I like the buggy ride. Okay, um, so Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Again, we're flying through quick, and I, don't, I may not have all the, sc- the verses on the screen for you, so I don't know what I put on and what I didn't. But Acts chapter 1. Jesus is about to be ascended into heaven. Look at verse 8. This is, these are the final words he says to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, he was lifted up and a cloud hid them from his sight. Okay, so, so Jesus re- basically says the exact same thing that John records. Um, he repeats it again here just before he's ascended. 
you will be my witnesses as you receive the Holy Spirit's power to do that work. So he tells them that that's going to happen. Then you get to chapter 2. And we're not going to read all this, right? Let me just summarize it. Chapter 2, you can read it on your own. The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. And they begin to just have this power that they didn't have before. And what happens is Peter rushes out into the streets of Jerusalem and begins to preach the first Christian sermon. He preaches about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And he proclaims that this is the only way to be saved. And, and as he does that, he's preaching to a, a group of people who are from all over the world. They're, they're devout people. They're religious people. They're in Jerusalem for a feast, but they all speak different languages. And the Holy Spirit empowers Peter to speak and then translates all of those words into the languages of the people who hear it. And so everybody hears the gospel preached in their own language in this moment. And it says, um, so, so look, look at this. Here's how he summarizes it. 38, chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words... So like, this is a really long chapter and we just got the summary of it. Like he, they, they just, Luke's like, ah, I can't even write down everything he said with a lot of other words too. And you guys probably feel that right now. Um, a lot of other words. He bore witness, bore witness. See, you're catching, see that? He bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3000 souls. So the church explodes basically overnight from about 120 believers to 3,000 people. Now the church is making some some headway here. Now let's jump down to chapter 3. This is where we're going to land on 3 and 4 primarily. So it's going to be a short buggy ride because there's 28 chapters. We're only stopping at 4. But but let's look at chapter 3. Now Peter and John... We're going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And the man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Okay, and then Peter begins to enter the temple. He speaks again. He's preaching again to the people there. And there's a whole lot of, uh, 
movement towards Jesus in these things. So look down at chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, this is John and Peter, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So now we're gone from 120 to 3,000 to now 5,000 people that are making up the church. The next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Now it's important to notice this. These are the exact same men who crucified Jesus. We're not talking 20, 30, 40 years after this. These are the same men who just months before, about 40 days earlier, had crucified Jesus. Same guys, Caiaphas, Annas, this this family who kind of runs the show in Israel, the, the, the religious elites of Israel in that day, have Peter and John in custody and they're, they're interrogating them about what's happening. Okay, let's keep reading. When they had set them in the midst, in, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? This is referred to healing that man who was sitting by the gate and giving him the ability to walk again. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people in Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, that's bold, whom God raised from the dead, By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation. There is salvation, rather, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So they're standing before the most powerful men in in the country, the men who have the right to kill them. And they're saying, you know what? Here's, here's how it works. You crucified the guy who healed this guy. God raised him from the dead, so he's now still alive and active. You rejected the cornerstone. You're the builders who rejected Jesus. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. So you don't have to be a big shot and you don't have to know everything to make an impact for Jesus. Peter and John were fishermen. They had been with Jesus, but that's about it. They weren't educated. They were just common guys. And then that's where it says, verse 13, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's all they had, but that's all they needed. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, They had nothing to say in opposition. So they've got the proof that this man was healed right in front of them. They can't can't counter this. It's like, well, 
all right, we're kind of stuck here. Our hands are, are tied. So verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So they say, no. Okay. Like, don't talk about Jesus. No, not going to do that. Verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go because they had no way to punish them because of the people, for they were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So here's the, here's the issue, right? Uh, Peter and John, kind of the, the leaders of the, of the early church at this time, two of the three that were closest to Jesus in his in his earthly life and ministry are doing bold things. They're saying bold things and they are witnessing about Jesus. They're being his witnesses in Jerusalem, which is what Jesus said they would do as the spirit empowered them to do it. The leadership of Israel, the same leadership that killed Jesus 40 days or so before this um, are now threatening them and, and saying, you can't talk about Jesus anymore. And they say, yeah, well, Tough luck. We're going to talk about Jesus. And so then they further threatened them. Now, we don't know what other threats they threw on them. Did they say, well, if you don't stop, you're going to be crucified just like Jesus? They could have probably made that work, right? They, they made it work for Jesus. They could do it again. Or were they threatening him with arrest? Threatening him with, I mean, they just, they're threatening them. And, and here, here they are. They are sent away because they can't actually do anything to them in this moment because the people are compelled by the fact that this man was healed. All right, keep going here. This is where it goes. And we're, we are going to get to the point at some point here, okay? So verse 23, when, when they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So they come back to their friends and they say, okay, well, the, the chief priest is threatening to kill us or do whatever to us. Um, okay, so what do they do? Verse 24, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. They pray. The church prays together. And here's what they say. We actually have the, the record of what they prayed. They said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said to said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, what are they talking about? They're talking about 
God's sovereign hand in crucifying Jesus so that they would be saved. And all these things happened under God's direction. He used Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Everybody was used by God to do what God intended to do in crucifying Jesus in order to save the world. Now, here's how they continue to pray. This is how they wrap it up. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. All right, notice how what happens here. Peter and John are threatened by the leaders. They go back to the people that they're friends with and the church and say, here's what's happening. So they pray and they pray this long, pretty elaborate prayer, right? But the the prayer basically acknowledges God, you're God. We're not God, you're God. Okay, so they, they acknowledge that. And then they ask him to do something. And here's what's incredible. And this is where we're, what I'm trying to get us to. Look at what they ask God to do for them in light of the threats. Look at their threats and grant to your servants protection. Is that what they pray for? Do they pray for a hedge of protection? Whatever a hedge, why, why do we pray for bushes to surround us? I don't really know. But like, why not a, a fence or a wall or something effective? I don't know. But whatever it is, they're not praying for that though. Now I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for protection. Don't hear me say that. I'm not, I'm not going there either. I'm just saying that's not what they prayed for. They prayed that God would give them more boldness in the face of threats in the face of the potential of being crucified, in the face of arrest and imprisonment, they'd already been imprisoned overnight for what they said about Jesus. And they're saying, just give us more boldness. And they ask for something else. Verse 30. While, so while you're giving us boldness, also do this, Lord, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of Jesus. They are praying for God to keep giving them boldness to speak, and they're praying for God to keep doing amazing things for people. So what are we seeing in this? Well, we can put these into two broad categories of what they're asking for, and I think these categories are what we need to also ask for too. Our situation will be different. It has to be different. We're not living in the first century. We're not living in Israel. We're not, we're not these men, right? But we, we can ask for the same things they're asking for. What are they asking for? They're asking for boldness and they're asking for the love of God to keep being on display. That, that's what they're asking for. As, as they are moving the gospel down the field, so to speak, right? They're, they're continuing to make the gospel known in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. As they continue to spread this message out, their prayer is that God would give them boldness to speak and that he would continue to do amazing acts of love 
for the people who need him. Love and boldness. That's what we're seeing. They have a heart for people who need to be healed through Christ. And they have a desire to be bold in their witness for Christ. That's what they pray for. And, and so how do we fit these kind of categories, this love and this boldness that we're seeing in the apostles to our lives? How do we see this work with us? Well, the words that we've chosen to use over the years at Springbrook is we're talking about a vision for Springbrook Church. Here's how we've articulated this over all these years now. It's, we use two words. Instead of love and boldness, we use the words invest and invite. But I think both of those things get at the same idea. We, we want people in our church to invest in genuine relationships with people who do not know Jesus. We, we want you to love people enough and especially love the people who don't know Jesus enough to actually invest in them, to befriend them, to care for them, to be engaged in their life, not to treat them as a project to be accomplished, but as a person to be cared for. And as we do that, as we see the investing of our time and energy and, and gifts and all the things that God has given us to care for the lost, we also need something else. We need boldness. We need to invite these people to Jesus. Invest and invite is a simple way that we can understand our, our role to help people love Jesus. We should be doing this prayerfully. We should be doing this for God to open up doors for us to do these things, of course. But if we're not caring for people, we're going to have very few opportunities to actually share the good news of Jesus with them. It starts with investing in them. And an investment, by the way, is a long-term strategy. It's not a short-term thing. It's the, it's the difference between investing for retirement over the long haul of your career and by the end of it, you have the money you need to live versus trying to blow all your money on the lottery for that one chance of maybe making it rich and then blowing all that money in three months like everyone who wins the lottery. Um, that's the difference, right? We're not treating people like projects or like this instant reward thing. We're treating people like they're actually people that they need to be cared for and invested in and walked through life with. And as we do that, you would be amazed at the opportunities you'll have to actually invite them to Jesus. I, I think we, we need to see that that's the heartbeat of the apostles here. And we see this heartbeat continue on through them, particularly in the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul goes to a place, he plants a church, he spends years in those places. He's not just jumping away after, you know, a, a month of being with somebody. He's in relationship with these churches, these Christians who he has helped bring to Christ, have helped form into churches, and then he's with them. And then he continues to write to them and continues to send his friends to them. And, and we're seeing this long-term investment of helping people love Jesus. It takes time and it takes intentionality. And investing in somebody is good. I think we, we can maybe get that. Like, hey, I have, I have family members that aren't Christians or I have coworkers that aren't Christians and I have neighbors that I've had friendships with. For, I, you, you probably have people in your life who don't know Jesus. 
probably on some degree or another. So walking with them over the long term is what's going to open the doors for you to be bold and actually speak to them about Jesus. I, I think there's, there's, a, there's an old saying, I don't know who said it originally, but people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Um, I can't remember who originally said that. Chris, you might remember who said that. You've, you've shared it with me a couple of times too. It's a great thing and it's a true thing. People need to know that they're cared for. And listen, I, I'll just stay, I'm going to stand, I know I'm the guy standing up here talking to you, okay? But I will be the first to tell you I'm the worst at this in the room, easily. I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible at this because I'm, by nature, just want to be home and just not really be out there and I'm introverted and, and I know there's some, some of you who are in that same boat. Um, but I'm not good at this. But um, here's, here's what I will tell you. If I can have any measure of of this happen in my life, it's because God has opened doors, and he has. And I don't say what I'm about to say to say that I'm, I'm a rock star at evangelism, because I'm not. Uh, but God has used me in, in different ways at different times with different people by his grace and in his goodness and his opening the doors. Right? We don't manufacture this. This has to happen by the Spirit of God but here's, here's how this has played out in my life. And it's been, I'll just give you one example. Um, but it's played out pretty similarly in the times it's happened. Um, I try to care about the people I'm around to the best of my ability. Those are coworkers outside of the church, right? I've had jobs outside the church before. So, you know, that's where it's happened a lot for me is in relationship with my coworkers, um, I have tried to care for them. I've tried to befriend them. I've tried to actually walk with them through hard things and be functionally like a Christian in their life, which they may not have otherwise. And what's happened is that as I've done that, as I've worked with, that, with them over years in most cases, at some point, inevitably, um, I will have to say something to them like this. You know I'm a Christian. You know Jesus is the most important thing about me. Can I tell you why that is? And I've never had somebody say no, not yet. Because if I've had a two or three year relationship with a person and they know that I actually care about them, they're gonna hopefully care about me and wanna hear why I love Jesus. And that's just one way. Now there's millions of other ways that this can happen, but that's how it's worked in my life, at least in more recent years. And it's, it's, it's not led to anything dramatic happening, but it's led to me being able to share the gospel of what Jesus has done to save me from my sins and, and doing that through dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. You're just trying to help explain the basic things to someone so that they can respond to Jesus for themselves. And, and so again, we're, we're, I'm trying not to lay a bunch of guilt on you because that's the last thing you need is more guilt. You get that all the time. What I'm trying to say is that we need to love people and loving people means inevitably that we invest in them and will at some point need to be bold and say, you know, I've got to talk to you about Jesus. And that might be, it might feel awkward. It probably will feel awkward, but you won't regret the conversation once you have it. And then you just got to trust the Lord after that to do with it what he's going to do. Because you can't create a, a person coming to Christ. Only Jesus can do that. So we just share. 
So I want to encourage you to think about how you can do that in the areas that you live and work and play. You have relationships with people I will never have relationships with, most likely. So you're the person God has put in that place at this time for those people. And so look at that as an opportunity to share Jesus. Love and boldness is what we see flow from the early apostles, the first apostles, and we see them pray and ask God for it. There's one more thing here quickly, real quickly. Um, Let's keep, we're still in this text, chapter 4, verse 32 through 36 or 37. Um, There's another piece to loving, helping people love Jesus. And and here's here's what it is. Let's let's read the text and then I'll talk about this for just a minute or two. Um, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many, of, for as, many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought, them, uh, brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so again, this is not going to be a one-to-one exchange of what we do. I'm not telling you to sell your vacant land and give it to the church. Okay, I'm not telling you to do that. Not at all. But this is a picture of what was happening in those days to help meet the needs of the church. But this is showing us something. It's not giving us an exact thing that we have to replicate because our times are different, our cultures are different. But the principle is still true. And it's this, that being a church that helps people love Jesus means that we're a church that actually embodies gospel culture. If you want to be a church that helps more people love Jesus, we have to embody what it means to believe the gospel. And I know I hit this drum all the time, right? But we have to see ourselves growing in Jesus and then seeing that growth impact people's lives in a way that reflects Jesus's love for us. And as as we do that, that's what you're seeing happen here, right? People are going, hey, Jesus has given me everything. So why don't I just give everything I have to whatever needs there are? That flows from a gospel doctrine that leads to a gospel culture that Christ has given them everything they have, so why not give it up for someone else? Again, I'm not saying we have to do that exactly in the same way, but the gospel culture that existed among them needs to still exist among us. And we need to care for people with genuine hearts of love, being of one heart and one soul, as it says in verse 32, so that people are cared for genuinely. That's how we kind of take this two-stage two, uh, approach to helping people love Jesus. We have it personally in our individual lives as we help people love Jesus through inv- invitation and investing. But we also have a church direction where corporately together we see people 
love Jesus more because we're embodying what Jesus has done as best we can. And so if we, if we tackle both of these approaches simultaneously, we'll be amazed at what God does. We really will. We will be amazed to see what God does. And I think we're seeing it slowly in drips and drops, not in a giant flood, but I think this is better to see it slowly build gradually over time as people embrace who Jesus truly is and actually see that lived out by people who take it like it's real. And I think through all these things, we can see Jesus work and move in our churches and in our, and in our lives. And I just want to encourage you, again, I don't want to guilt you. I don't want to pummel you with, with more and more guilt to say, oh, I'm a terrible Christian. Listen, we're, we all have areas to grow in. Ask the Lord for help in the areas where you see your weakness. He will meet you in those areas. But if you can genuinely have a heart of love for him, a love for others, and a desire to help people love Jesus, we're on the right track. So with that said, I'll close it up and I'll pray for us as we, as we conclude today. Jesus, thank you for how you have loved us, how you died to show us that love, how you were raised from the dead to bring us into a, a full relationship with you. We pray, God, that there would be a, a movement of your spirit among us. Uh, however you want to do that, God, we're not going to presume to tell you how to do that, but we pray you would do a work among us, that you would help more people love Jesus, that you would give us a heart of love and boldness, that you would give us what we need to, to show more people who you are so that they can move from being hostile to you towards loving you. And we pray that you would do that among us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.